Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, December 4th, 2023, the 1048th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So on Wednesday's show last week, an episode called Controlling the Flow, we talked about the release of the CTIL files by the same team of center-left 
edge of the mainstream journalists who brought us the Twitter files a year ago, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. I went through the article. I played Schellenberger's opening statement in front of the House Subcommittee on Weaponization. And we discussed the CTIL files a bit, John Harold and I did, on Saturday night's episode of Devolution Power Hour. But today we're getting a rerun of shared content from that hearing and a rerun of the red pill or the awakening that comes from understanding the level of government censorship and the intent. And today we're seeing Matt Taibbi's opening statement go viral on X formerly Twitter. And because I want to make a few more points about the whole CTIL thing, I figured why not play Matt Taibbi's opening statement. We'll have perfect balance. And it's the sort of statement that gives us a great springboard for just another lovely week in the information war. And the thing to focus on is that it is now admitted by the other side that we are in an information war. Here's Matt Taibbi. Exactly one year ago today, um, I had my first look at the documents that came to be known as the Twitter files. We've learned a lot since then. When Michael and I testified before uh, the good people of this committee in March, we both talked about how this isn't a partisan issue at all, uh, despite the fact that it's been uh, repeatedly described as a right-wing conspiracy theory or, or a right-wing fantasy. Uh, we found evidence of suppression of movements on both sides, uh, including leftist movements like the Yellow Vests, uh, parties like the Green Party, organizations like Consortium Magazine. Just this week, Michael and I reported on the group um, that he talked about, the CTI League, and in those documents, we found evidence of monitoring uh, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, hashtags like Healthcare for All. The nature of censorship programs is that they tend to expand in all directions, and these uh, programs already have. As someone who voted for Democrats his whole life and who got his ideas about speech issues from people like Senator Frank Church, Paul Wellstone, Dennis Kucinich, I believe also that there's a less obvious but more important reason that people across the spectrum should care about this issue. The former executive director of the ACLU, Ira Glasser, once explained to a group of students why he didn't support hate speech codes on campuses. The problem, he said, wasn't the speech. The, the, the problem was, quote, who gets to decide what's hateful? Who gets to decide what to ban? Because, quote, most of the time, it ain't you. <laughs> the story that came out in the Twitter files and for which more evidence surfaced in both the Missouri v. Biden lawsuit and this committee's Facebook files releases and the CTI League documents, they all speak directly uh, to Ira Glasser's concerns. There's been a dramatic shift in attitudes about speech in this country, and many politicians now clearly believe the bulk of Americans can't be trusted to digest information on their own. This mindset imagines that if we see one clip from RT, we'll stop being patriots, that once exposed to hate speech, we'll become bigots ourselves automatically, that if we read even one Donald Trump tweet, we'll become insurrectionists. Having come to this conclusion, the government agencies like the DHS and the FBI and the quasi-private agencies uh, who do anti-disinformation work have taken upon themselves the paternalistic responsibility to sort out for us what is and is not safe. 
While they see great danger in allowing others to read controversial material, it's taken for granted that they themselves will be immune to the dangers of speech. This leads to the one inescapable question about these new anti-disinformation programs that is never discussed, but needs to be. Who does this work? Stanford's Election Integrity Project helpfully made a graphic showing the quote-unquote external stakeholders involved in their content review operation. It showed four columns, government, civil society, platforms, and media. There's one group that's conspicuously absent from that list, people, ordinary people. Whether America continues the informal sub-Rosa censorship system uh, we've seen in the, Twitter in the Twitter files or the Facebook files, or whether it formally adopts something like Europe's draconian New Digital Services Act, it's already abundantly clear who won't be involved in this kind of work. There'll be no dock workers doing content flagging, no poor people from inner city neighborhoods, no single moms pulling multiple waitressing jobs, no immigrant store owners or Uber drivers. These programs will always feature a tiny rarefied sliver of affluent professional class Americans censoring a huge and ever-expanding pool of everyone else. Take away the highfalutin talk about countering hate and reducing harm, and anti-disinformation is just a bluntly elitist gatekeeping exercise. If you prefer to think in progressive terms, it's class war. If one small demographic over here has broad control over the whole speech landscape, and a great big one over there has no control whatsoever, it follows that one of those groups will end up with more political power than the other. Which one is the, is the winner? To paraphrase Ira Glasser, it probably ain't yours. It isn't just one side or the other that will lose if these programs are allowed to continue. It's pretty much everyone, which is why these programs must be defunded before it's too late. Now, what we heard there was a decidedly different perspective than the one we heard from Schellenberger. This is a perspective that is purely of and from the quote unquote American left. This is the best part of what the American left imagines itself to be. Now, I would argue that on any sensible understanding of the political spectrum from left to right, that sliding scale goes between authoritarianism and anarchy, authoritarianism on the left anarchy on the right. And I think maybe a better, more sensible way to look at it for these times is centralization on the left and decentralization on the right. From those perspectives, though, either one, there is nothing leftist about defending human rights. Freedom of speech is one of the most basic and necessary human rights. And the UN agrees with that. From the United Nations own site, UN.org, you can find an entry called Freedom of Expression, a fundamental human right. There is nothing about defending the freedom of speech that is in any way something that should identify any leftist movement, certainly not the American left. Framing it as bipartisan also doesn't make any sense. It is the most obvious thing. There should be no discrepancy between people about whether or not it's important to defend the human right of free speech. But it has become difficult because culture has led certain parts of our society into that viewpoint. 
And Matt Taibbi described that part of society. It is our cultural elites, people with wealthy upbringings who go to important colleges and then to protect their power, want to decide what other people are allowed to say and ultimately what those people will think. Defending the fundamental human right of the freedom of speech should not be a left or right issue, not that the common diluted understanding of left-right makes sense in the first place. And Taibbi also said that in the course of their study into the Twitter files and now into the CTIL files, some of the censorship was aimed directly toward, quote-unquote, leftist causes. He mentioned democratic socialists and healthcare for all, which are both absolutely of the regime. And then he mentioned Gray Zone, the media outlet, which is considered left. And the writers have some strange leftist perspectives, but they are primarily anti-regime leftists. And again, I think that framing only even makes sense because we have generally been led into a misunderstanding about what left and right are in the first place, the Democrat socialists and healthcare for all, what's going on there is that the regime sometimes actually even needs to slow down its own arguments because they offend the general public and become so toxic that putting them out there actually begins exposing more aspects of the corruption and hypocrisy of the regime. Think of defund the police. It was all they wanted to do for a while. And then the issue became really toxic. They wanted to stop talking about it. There was actually a phase where they tried to pretend that the Republicans were the ones who really wanted to defund the police. You still hear it every now and then when they talk about defunding the FBI. It's not hard to understand that certain aspects of the regime making the regime's own arguments can potentially go too far to the point where they actually need to stop that in its tracks. Again, think about Kissinger and Realpolitik. It's not about principles. It's not about ideology. They are more than happy to censor, quote unquote, the left. If what the left is doing becomes a detriment to the advance of the global regime agenda. Generally, the left is useful to the regime because they expand the Overton window to allow ever more parts of the communist agenda. But if that keeps going to the point where it begins to hinder the advance of the regime agenda, well, then they're going to blunt that and stop it in its tracks. The gray zone is an entirely different scenario because though they are of the left, they are not supporting the regime. They are explicitly anti-regime. And my sense is that they are sincere and authentic about that. And maybe we'll find out in the future. That's not entirely true. So I wanted to clarify that because when Matt Taibbi is representing the left in that way, it's important to understand that the reasons why they would censor the left are not always the reasons they censor the right. They censor the true anti-authoritarian, anti-regime right, people in the MAGA movement, people like us, because it is our expressed intent to stop their agenda. And the flip side of that in parallel is that they don't censor a lot of the right. Ben Shapiro is like the number one, quote unquote, conservative online. 
one of the most popular conservatives on Facebook. Facebook doesn't halt Ben Shapiro. And they actually communicate to the public that that is proof that they don't just censor conservatives. Look, we don't censor this conservative. He's number one. And that's correct because Ben Shapiro is controlled opposition. Ben Shapiro moves the global regime agenda forward as a member of the uniparty right. And in this dynamic, you can again see the presence of the uniparty. It is right there in the evidence they are presenting. They're not talking about the uniparty. They're operating in the framework that we have come to understand as representative of our political environment, even though it isn't at all. And it's misdescribed. It makes no sense to pretend that socialism and communism are leftist and fascism and Nazism are of the right. How? Why? And they say, oh, because they're racist and violent. Wait a second. So what makes Nazism and fascism movements and ideologies of the right, despite the fact that they are both rooted in Marxism, is the racism and violence. So racism and violence are necessary characteristics of the right. Well, then I guess that makes the left never racist and never violent. Isn't that convenient? What does no racism versus racism and no violence versus violence have to do with a political spectrum? And of course, it has nothing to do with that. Are you pro-racism? Are you pro-violence? I'm not. I think it should actually be a goal of society to advance our interests using violence as an absolute last resort. I think that's actually how we come to have world peace. Now, I agree with Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan and various predecessors who believed in peace through strength. I think that we should have the best military in the world. And I hope that this process reinvigorates Americans and invigorates <laughs> young Americans to express their patriotism through service. It has become a source of shame and regret for me that I didn't go do that. I'm not anti-military. And ultimately, I'm not anti-war. I just think that those things should be absolutely capable of achieving our goals when needed and also among the last possible resorts, because that means that better processes have already broken down. I think that's possible. I think Donald Trump thinks it's possible. But otherwise, I have no problem stating that I am not pro-violence and not pro-racism. Think about the frame we're being given if violence and racism are on one side and they tell us that that is what being on the right means. Now, certainly people of different political persuasions have different feelings about violence. I am absolutely sure that there are anarchists out there who are correctly termed on the right who may well be racists and may well be violent. But they're not putting it into some government system because they don't believe in government systems. Whereas on the other side, that centralized authoritarian government system that ultimately controls everything because its entire purpose is to amass more power and control all power eventually. Well, they have absolutely no problem 
exploiting racism and exploiting violence. And sometimes they even do it at the same time, like they did throughout the summer of love in 2020. But the point is, you see the hand of the Uniparty here. Even the censorship was not done to benefit just one political party. And it wasn't done or promoted or accepted by one political party. It was done on behalf of the regime's agenda, and it was done against anyone who was making the implementation of that agenda more difficult on the representatives of the regime. It is a benefit to the controlled opposition dynamic to talk about this in terms of one party doing this to the other or this being done to benefit one party or the other. Thinking about it in those terms gives leftists the ability to say, nah, they did it to us too. And the problem is when they're understanding that it's being done to both sides, that doesn't scare the hell out of them because of the authoritarian overreach and the explicit violation of human rights. It just says to them, okay, well, justice was achieved. It's bad, but at least it was applied fairly to both sides. Now we can just move on. And that's when you remember that these people truly do sound vaccinated and have absolutely no survival instinct. They will believe whatever they're told and make whatever excuses are necessary to make sure that the responsibility for any problem that might arise never rests with the global regime and its agenda. It always just rests with the other side of the controlled opposition dynamic. People on the Uniparty right will say the Uniparty left is censoring us. And people on the Uniparty left will say the Uniparty right is blowing this out of proportion and making a conspiracy theory out of it because they did it to us, too. And the truth is, neither side of the Uniparty is being. Except when they either fall out of line or get so overzealous that they actually hinder the advance of the global regime's agenda. Members of the Uniparty left and the Uniparty right are just identifying as censored because people they sometimes align with, at least ostensibly, are censored. And before we move off the CTIL subject, I just want to go back through something we went through last week. And then we discussed John and I on Saturday night's Devolution Power Hour. It was a couple of paragraphs from the CTIL Files article posted last week that Schellenberger had on his X page, formerly Twitter. A study of the antecedents to these events lead us to the realization that there's something off kilter with our information landscape, wrote Terp and her co-authors. The usual useful idiots and fifth columnists, now augmented by automated bots, cyborgs, and human trolls, are busily engineering public opinion, stoking up outrage, sowing doubt, and chipping away at trust in our institutions. And now it's our brains that are being hacked. The MisInfoSec report focused on information that changes beliefs through narratives and recommended a way to counter misinformation by attacking specific links in a kill chain or influence chain from the MisInfo incident before it becomes a full-blown narrative. The report laments that governments and corporate media no longer have full control of information. For a long time, the ability to reach mass audiences belonged to the nation state. In the USA, via broadcasting license through ABC, CBS, and NBC, 
Now, however, control of informational instruments has been allowed to devolve to large technology companies who have been blissfully complacent and complicit in facilitating access to the public for information operators at a fraction of what it would have cost them by other means. So again, the admission that this is an information war, they're talking about systems of engineering public opinion. They are very clear about their understanding that narratives change beliefs and then those beliefs guide action. So if you want to ultimately control the action, you have to control the narrative. That was their strategy. That's what the propaganda and the censorship are there to support. And then they admit that they have lost control over the narrative because they have lost control over the means of information. And this entire project was designed to make sure that nothing like 2016 Brexit and Trump ever happens again. That is them stating explicitly that they were willing to use whatever means necessary to make sure that Donald Trump, the sitting duly elected president of the United States, could not be reelected. And they were going to use military grade information operations in order to do it. And they had no problem whatsoever with violating people's human rights at scale. So we know we're in an information war and they know that we're in an information war. The only people who don't know we're in an information war are standard issue villagers on the uniparty right and the uniparty left. Because they all call the information war a conspiracy theory. We can't possibly be in an information war. And Trump can't possibly think that means that we're in a real war and act as a wartime president and have the authority to act that a wartime president normally commands. They have to pretend all that's not true. If everyone was to find out we're in an information war, Well, then pretending that everything is good and normal within that controlled opposition dynamic, that all seems kind of petty and pointless, like it's all a distraction. And if you're the sort of person who focused on that creepy little dude on the Bud Light can, Dylan Mulvaney, for weeks or months, hey, you might have fallen for it. And while we're on the subject of information operations by the Uniparty in order to distract the country, and push false narratives that allow them to further implement their agenda. Let's talk about the star of the sham and illegitimate J six committee, Liz Cheney, who was out on the Sunday shows this weekend. She has a book coming out tomorrow. Here is the description as listed on Amazon. Her book, by the way, is called oath and honor, a memoir And a warning, that's Liz Cheney, daughter of war criminal Dick Cheney. Liz Cheney, who, as an incumbent in Wyoming, lost her congressional primary to Harriet Hageman by like 70 points. But the description on Amazon. A gripping firsthand account of the January 6th, 2021 insurrection from inside the halls of Congress, from origins to aftermath as Donald Trump and his enablers betrayed the American people and the Constitution 
by the House Republican leader who dared to stand up to it. In the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election, Donald Trump and many around him, including certain other elected Republican officials, intentionally breached their oath to the Constitution. They ignored the rulings of dozens of courts, plotted to overturn a lawful election, and provoked a violent attack on our capital. Liz Cheney, one of the few Republican officials to take a stand against these efforts, witnessed the attack firsthand and then helped lead the Congressional Select Committee investigation into how it happened. In Oath and Honor, she tells the story of this perilous moment in our history. Those who helped Trump spread the stolen election lie, those whose actions preserved our constitutional framework, and the risks we still face. Now, what timing on the release of Liz Cheney's book, Ron DeSantis, clearly a failure, Nikki Haley, no chance, and now we're being told it is allowed to be said, including by the mainstream media, that maybe Joe Biden's just not up to the task. And as I have been saying for well over three years now, they are going to attempt to give Joe Biden a soft landing. The ridiculous old demented pervert was allowed to end his career of political corruption being called president. The regime did as much as they could to implement their great reset agenda with Joe Biden as president. People don't like it. Not at all. And if they can provide Joe a soft landing, they can usher him out, bring someone back in, tell the country, hey, it's not Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama or Hillary Clinton. They're not the people who implemented this agenda. That was Joe Biden. And hey, there were some good things. So why not elect another Democrat? Now, I don't think they're going to be able to get Joe Biden off stage and get him out of there. But I think they would have liked to. I think that that part of the process was supposed to happen around this time on the calendar because we can see multiple high profile examples reaching a broad audience of prominent regime figures suggesting that maybe Joe Biden has passed his sell by date. Maybe he's not the right guy to lead the country forward. Maybe he can't get elected. Maybe people are worried about his age. And of course, Joe Biden goes out there and gives people plenty of reasons to go along with that and believe that. And then we have events like Gavin Newsom debating Ron DeSantis so that the two of them together look like the two paths forward for the establishment. Ron DeSantis represents the uniparty right. Gavin Newsom represents the uniparty left. Here are your two new leaders. So Joe Biden's weakened. Everybody hates Donald Trump. That's what we're told. Everybody hates Donald Trump, but there's just nothing they can really do about it. The National Review wrote an editorial today about replacing or revising Obamacare. And they even admitted in that editorial that Donald Trump would almost surely be the Republican nominee and had a very, very strong chance of being reelected president. So what do you do when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place? Well, you go out and find yourself the daughter of a war criminal and run her as a third party candidate. Another thing we've been talking about for years. And now here we have it. December of 2023. 
Liz Cheney is out there on her book tour, trying to look presidential, trying to appeal to all of the standard issue villagers on the Uniparty left and the Uniparty right. The Uniparty right is fine with Liz Cheney. That is an establishment Republican family. That is the daughter of war criminal Dick Cheney. And they are all more than happy to support war criminals. They are more than happy to support foreign wars and American adventurism. They are neocons. That is what they do. They are communism with a splash of Genghis Khan style world domination, all on behalf of the global regime. And the standard issue villagers on the uniparty left, they love her too because she is anti-Trump. Here's a bit of Liz Cheney from yesterday on CBS Sunday Mornings. Given your experience, do you look at politics differently? Do you say, you know, we spent a lot of time demonizing the other side, which put all of our supporters in the mindset of, you know what, they're not just wrong, they're evil. Yeah, absolutely. If everything that a political adversary does is met with, you know, an attack that, oh my God, this is, this is you know, the worst possible thing you can imagine, this is, this is dire, then when you face something that really is dire, like we are facing today with respect to Donald Trump and his efforts to unravel the republic, people become numb to the truth because they feel like, well, we've heard that so many times before from politicians. Now, she's basically advertising the uniparty there as the proper choice. She's saying that we have to get past the partisanship and pretending that all of these other things are a threat when the real threat is Donald Trump. And who is Donald Trump a threat to? Well, it's not Republicans or Republican voters, not even Democrats or Democrat voters. It's not the people in general, although she's representing it that way. It's also probably true that many standard issue villagers on the Uniparty right and the Uniparty left are content with that framework because they view it as a default and acceptable understanding that they are familiar with. But Liz Cheney is saying Donald Trump is a threat to the regime. And that is why she's out there presenting a politics like hers as the solution. She has the neocon warmongering and adventurism that the military industrial complex on behalf of the global regime absolutely loves, along with the Trump hate that the Uniparty left absolutely loves. What happens if Mike Johnson's the speaker on the 6th of January 2025? He can't be. You know, we're facing a situation with respect to the 2024 election uh, where it's an existential crisis uh, and we have to ensure that we don't have a situation where an election that might be thrown into the House of Representatives um, is overseen by a Republican majority. So you would prefer a Democratic majority? I, uh, I believe very strongly in those principles and ideals that have defined the Republican Party. But the Republican Party of today has made a choice, and they haven't chosen the Constitution. And so I do think it's, uh, it presents a threat if the Republicans are in the majority in January 2025. Liz Cheney says at another point that no one can dispute her conservative credentials. I don't know what she means by that. Does she mean it's conservative? to run for Congress in Wyoming while not living in Wyoming and actually living in Virginia. We are supposed to accept that her conservative credentials are unassailable because her dad is war criminal neocon Dick Cheney, who has been hated by the left for decades. 
But none of that is actually conservative, especially when you are participating in an illegitimate committee that was formed outside the bounds of the House rules and did not allow cross-examination or competing testimony to enter the picture. She helped to legitimize in the eyes of the public a kangaroo court. That's not conservative. She says that the most important conservative principle is upholding the Constitution. But she's violating every principle of the Constitution, every principle on which the founders wrote the Constitution. And then, of course, she's doing all of this to help in the project of covering up the fact that our elections are stolen, which is why the very violent insurrection happened in the first place. And her statement there could not have been any clearer. She wants Democrats to win back the House next fall in obviously rigged elections so that there is nothing a Republican Congress can do to confirm Donald Trump as the president of the United States of America. And again, this comes down to a scenario where we have a contingent election and the result of the election is decided in the Congress based on which candidate has the support of each state's congressional delegation. Liz Cheney, arch conservative, wants the Democrats to win next fall as an act of her conservatism, of course, just to make sure Donald Trump can't be president because Donald Trump is the existential threat to our democracy. It's a threat Cheney hopes she can be clear enough about to break through the political numbness. You say Donald Trump, if he is reelected, it will be the end of the republic. What do you mean? He's told us what he will do. People who say, well, if he's elected, it's not that dangerous because we have all of these checks and balances, don't fully understand the extent to which the Republicans in Congress today um, have been co-opted. One of the things that we see happening today is a sort of a, a sleepwalking into uh, dictatorship in the United States. Donald Trump a fascist? I think that he certainly is employing fascist techniques. I think that the, the tools that he's using are tools that we've seen used by authoritarians, fascists, tyrants around the world. You know, the, the, the things that he has said and done in some ways are so outrageous that we have become numb to them. What I believe is the cause of our time is that we not become numb, that we understand the warning signs, that we understand the danger, and that, that we ignore partisan politics to stop him. Now, she can't say Donald Trump's a fascist, but he does employ fascist techniques. Oh, really, Liz? Which ones? Do you mean fascist techniques like combining corporations with governments and the military? The way your dad did. Is that the sort of fascist technique you're talking about, Liz Cheney? And of course, that can't be it unless unless she can figure out a way that Donald Trump has done the same thing. Then her dad did it the non-fascist way and Donald Trump did it the fascist way. We are sleepwalking into a dictatorship. Well, no, we're not. We're in one right now. We are in a communist dictatorship. I know people don't like to consider that that might be true or to accept that, but that is what we have. They tell us about the ideology in no uncertain terms. They operate within the scope of the global agenda and they don't hide it. 
They have major conferences all around the world where they talk all about it all the time. You can read all of their plans online. You can watch them eliminate the borders of countries. You can watch them change the language and redefine words and steal elections and mandate people's participation in medical experimentation and implement medical segregation. And you can just go on down the list, but standard issue villagers out there, they know fascism is bad and they know Donald Trump is bad. Therefore, Donald Trump is fascist. That really is all it takes for these people. They're like, oh yeah, fascism is bad. I've heard Donald Trump is very, very, very bad. So of course then Donald Trump is a fascist. That makes sense to people on this planet. You probably know some of them. You might even be friends or coworkers with a person who thinks something like that. Perhaps even a family member. Fascism is bad. Donald Trump is bad. Therefore, Donald Trump is fascist. Does it make sense? No, not to anyone who understands rudimentary logic. But is there a way that it could make sense to people who don't? There sure is. She concludes by saying that it is the mission of our times or whatever phraseology she used to not become numb to all of this. We cannot allow partisanship to take our eyes off the crucial goal of making sure that Donald Trump can never be recognized as the American president ever again. Whatever it takes to make sure that happens is worth it. Let the Democrats win the House in 2024. That's now the most conservative thing you can say. Let the Democrats win the House in 2024. Every good conservative knows that the Democrats must win the House in 2024. Liz Cheney basically used that interview to confirm the existence of the Uniparty and also suggest that, yes, the regime is absolutely willing to steal elections by whatever means necessary. It's like she's doing my work for me. But the problem is, for people who are not awake yet, for standard issue villagers out there, many of them still believe that Donald Trump is the threat. They've been told that for eight years now, and it's never proven true, but they still believe it because people like Liz Cheney keep saying it. And they understand that if two people from opposite sides are saying the same thing, that thing must be true. That, of course, is the purpose of the controlled opposition dynamic. And Liz Cheney gives them what they want. The uniparty left loves her Trump hate. The uniparty right loves that she will let the evil twin faction and military industrial complex do whatever they want in terms of killing around the world, whoever the regime decides it needs killed. Want to take over countries and strip them of their resources while implementing the global regime's agenda? Well, Liz Cheney's your girl. More feminist dance therapy for Afghan women? Liz Cheney's your girl. It would actually be hilarious. I would love it so much, to be honest. It might be worth electing Liz Cheney as president just for this to happen. But if Liz Cheney became the face of feminist dance therapy in Afghanistan, knowing who her father is and doing that as the most conservative Republican that would be the sort of slapstick comedy that would let us all know <laughs> we're dangerously approaching the end. And speaking of her father, Steve Bannon mentioned on War Room today 
that this book, of course, it retells the story of the whole very violent insurrection. And he mentioned a story that Liz Cheney told last year where she communicated that on New Year's Day of 2022, her father, war criminal Dick Cheney, told Liz Cheney, defend the republic, my daughter. And isn't that interesting? I mean, they had already gotten rid of Donald Trump. Why was the republic still under threat on January 1st, 2022? Oh, that's right. It was under threat from the American people. Now, wait, why would the American people be a threat to their own country? That doesn't even make sense. Oh, he's saying the Republic in quotes, and he means our democracy. And what he really means is the evil twin uniparty faction of the global regime in America. So what he means is himself. He's saying, please, Liz, do whatever you can to make that mean, bad Donald Trump go away. Because if you can't make him go away, then he might make us all go away. Why was Dick Cheney so threatened by Donald Trump? It's like Dick Cheney himself believes all those conspiracy theories about how Donald Trump is only president to take down the regime and all those people who have committed crimes against America and crimes against humanity, people like Dick Cheney. But that's not what Donald Trump is doing. That, my friends, is a conspiracy theory. And I'm sure that after Dick Cheney said all of this to his daughter, Liz Cheney, about defending the Republican, really meaning defend our democracy, that Liz Cheney immediately responded and said, hey, dad, I know you're getting a little long in the tooth, but what are you doing telling those conspiracy theories? Don't tell me you believe that Donald Trump as president is actually really intending to drain the swamp from the American government and see that all those who have committed crimes against America and crimes against humanity are held accountable. You couldn't have possibly fallen for that conspiracy theory. Could you have father war criminal Dick Cheney? I'm sure that Liz Cheney, daughter of war criminal Dick Cheney, must have disabused her father of that silly notion, that conspiracy theory that Donald Trump was actually doing that. Everybody knows that Donald Trump only wants to be president to settle his personal grievances and to get rich and have more power and be a fascist totalitarian, whatever that means. Now, speaking of fascists and totalitarians, Victoria Newland, the woman who led the overthrow of the Ukrainian government from the Obama administration side of things in 2014, the woman who admitted in Senate testimony to Marco Rubio that the U.S. had active biolabs, Defense Department funded biolabs in Ukraine, that deranged neocon warmonger serving in Democrat administrations. There's that uniparty again. Well, her husband, Robert Kagan, he wrote a new op-ed for the Washington Post. Now, Robert Kagan is a co-founder with Bill Kristol of the Neocon Project for the New American Century, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and an advisor for presidential administrations of both parties on foreign policy. And of course, he was a Republican, but he left the Republican Party because of Donald Trump. His new Washington Post editorial 
from last week on Thursday, November 30th, the headline, a Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. Let's stop wishful thinking and face the stark reality. There is a clear path to dictatorship in the United States, and it is getting shorter every day. In 13 weeks, Donald Trump will have locked up the Republican nomination. In the Real Clear Politics poll average for the period from November 9th to 20th, Trump leads his nearest competitor by 47 points and leads the rest of the field combined by 27 points. The idea that he is unelectable in the general election is nonsense. He is tied or ahead of President Biden in all the latest polls, stripping other Republican challengers of their own stated reasons for existence. That being, of course, their claim that they are the ones who can win, but Trump would lose. That is the central thesis behind Ron DeSantis's campaign and what is pushed by his merry band of retards online. Donald Trump can't win against Joe Biden, but the other candidates can because you see Donald Trump turns off too much of the middle of the country. They all worry that Donald Trump is not going to get the standard issue villager vote. The fact that many Americans might prefer other candidates, much ballyhooed by such political sages as Karl Rove, will soon become irrelevant when millions of Republican voters turn out to choose the person whom no one allegedly wants. Very astute, Robert Kagan. At least you are understanding and owning all that. For many months now, we have been living in a world of self-delusion, rich with imagined possibilities. Maybe it will be Ron D. Santis or maybe Nikki Haley. Maybe the myriad indictments of Trump will doom him with Republican suburbanites. Such hopeful speculation has allowed us to drift along passively, conducting business as usual, taking no dramatic action to change course in hope and expectation that something will happen. Like people on a riverboat, we have long known there's a waterfall ahead, but assume we will somehow find our way to shore before we go over the edge. Just brilliant, brilliant writing. Oh, the imagery, so dramatic. But now the actions required to get us to shore are looking harder and harder, if not downright impossible. Nice work, Robert Kagan. You are crushing it. The magical thinking phase is ending. Barring some miracle, Trump will soon be the presumptive Republican nominee for president. When that happens, there will be a swift and dramatic shift in the political power dynamic in his favor. Until now, Republicans and conservatives have enjoyed relative freedom to express anti-Trump sentiments, to speak openly and positively about alternative candidates, to vent criticisms of Trump's behavior, past and present. Donors who find Trump distasteful have been free to spread their money around to help his competitors. Establishment Republicans have made no secret of their hope that Trump will be convicted and thus removed from the equation without their having to take a stand against him. Again, very astute observation. Establishment Republicans really are out there saying that this authoritarian abuse of the justice system to go after and indict a political opponent for totally made up crimes. Well, they love that. Whatever it takes to get Donald Trump out of there, establishment Republicans are down with that. And that too has failed. Now, the thing that Robert Kagan is missing 
is that all of these people who think that they've been getting free shots on goal, going after Donald Trump, saying all these terrible things about him, trying to elevate these other candidates and cover up the usurpation of this country, pretending that Joe Biden really did receive 81 million real lawful American votes. They all think they've had free shots at all of this because the rest of the Republican establishment supports them in doing that and provides them cover. But none of MAGA buys into that. And ultimately, Republican voters at large will not buy into that, even the ones who have flirted with the Ron DeSantis possibility. They're soon going to realize that no one is actually going to just forgive them. There's no amnesty on this. The same way they think about the uniparty left when it comes to COVID and lockdowns and masking children and all that, that's the situation they're in. They are the uniparty left compared to us. And no one is going to forget the fact that they went out and supported these people and said the things they said about Donald Trump and about Donald Trump supporters. And that's the most important part. But let's get back to the article. All this will end once Trump wins Super Tuesday. Votes are the currency of power in our system and money follows. And by those measures, Trump is about to become far more powerful than he already is. The hour of casting about for alternatives is closing. The next phase is about people falling into line. Now, up until this cycle, votes have not mattered. We have seen that quite clearly. Our elections are not real. Now, has something been fixed in our Republican primaries that is going to actually reflect real votes? Maybe. And if that happens, it's going to be wonderful to witness. But I don't expect that will happen. They may even let Trump win these primaries if it means they can hold on to their election apparatus. If they can go out to MAGA supporters and say, look, the election apparatus works just fine. Trump won the Republican nomination, that might be a win for them. If that makes people believe that our elections are legitimate and real, that is a win for them. Now, I don't think they're going to ultimately win that narrative battle, but you can see why they try this method and you can see them seeding that. But he mentions people falling in line and let's go on. In fact, it has already begun. As his nomination becomes inevitable, donors are starting to jump from other candidates to Trump. The recent decision by the Koch political network to endorse GOP hopeful Nikki Haley is scarcely sufficient to change this trajectory. And why not? If Trump is going to be the nominee, it makes sense to sign up early while he is still grateful for defectors. Even anti-Trump donors must ask whether their cause is best served by shunning the man who stands a reasonable chance of being the next president. Will corporate executives endanger their interests or their shareholders just because they or their spouses hate Trump? It's not surprising that people with hard cash on the line are the first to flip. The rest of the Republican Party will quickly follow. Rove's recent exhortation that primary voters choose anyone but Trump is the last such plea you are likely to hear from anyone with a future in the party. Even in a normal campaign, intra-party dissent begins to disappear once the primaries produce a clear winner. Most of the leading candidates have already pledged to support Trump if he is the nominee, even before he has won a single primary vote. Imagine their posture after he runs the table on Super Tuesday. Most of the candidates running against him will sprint toward him, competing for his favor. After Super Tuesday, there will be no surer and shorter path 
to the presidency for a Republican than to become the loyal running mate of a man who will be 82 in 2028. Republicans who have tried to navigate the Trump era by mixing appeals to non-Trump voters with repeated professions of loyalty to Trump will end that show. As perilous as it is for Republicans to say a negative word about Trump today, it will be impossible once he has sewn up the nomination. The party will be in full general election mode, subordinating all to the presidential campaign. What Republican or conservative will be standing up to Trump then? Will the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which has been rather boldly opposing Trump, continue to do so once he is the nominee and it is a binary choice between Trump and Biden? There will be no more infighting, only outfighting. In short, a tsunami of Trump support from all directions. A winner is a winner and a winner who stands a reasonable chance of wielding all the power there is to wield in the world is going to attract support no matter who they are. That is the nature of power at any time in any society. So Robert Kagan says that Donald Trump as president would wield all the power there is to wield in the world. And Donald Trump says he's going to give all that power back to the people. And there's at least ample reason to believe that that's true based on his approach and based on his responsiveness to the people. But I didn't realize it was all the power to wield in the entire world. But Trump will not only dominate his party, he will again become the central focus of everyone's attention, as if he's not already. Even today, the news media can scarcely resist following Trump's every word and action. Once he secures the nomination, he will loom over the country like a colossus, his every word and gesture chronicled endlessly. Even today, the mainstream news media, including The Post and NBC News, is joining forces with Trump's lawyers to seek televised coverage of his federal criminal trial in D.C. Trump intends to use the trial to boost his candidacy and discredit the American justice system as corrupt. And the media outlets serving their own interests will help him do it. And you can see that Robert Kagan is absolutely as insane as his warmongering neocon wife. He is making the argument right now that the mainstream media, based on their own self-interest, is going to help Donald Trump make the American justice system look like a farce. Donald Trump doesn't need the media's help, and the media's self-interest is not tied to television ratings. If it was, they wouldn't be producing all of the nonsense that they produce around the clock all the time. So it seems that even Robert Kagan is coming to grips with the reality that Donald Trump will most likely win the election next year. And we should understand that to mean that either the election fraud apparatus has been dismantled or exposed to the point where they can't properly use it and or they have reached a position where they understand there is absolutely no way they're going to be able to sell the country Joe Biden as the winner in an election against Donald Trump. No one would believe it. It was hard enough to make people believe it last time, but they wanted all the chaos and the rancor to end. And they were told that it would end if Donald Trump was removed from the picture. But it didn't end, and Donald Trump hasn't been removed from the picture. They got what they wanted, and it wasn't good enough. 
And many of them have come to blame Joe Biden for that because they already disgraced themselves by going to vote for him. The least he could do for them in return for them disgracing themselves was to do the job in a way that isn't its own brand new kind of disgrace. And naturally, Joe Biden was not up to the task. I talked about all of this a couple of weeks ago. They're coming to terms. They're panicking. They're coming to terms with the reality that Donald Trump is going to be president and they're trying to figure out ways to undermine his presidency. You just heard one of the ideas for a last ditch attempt to prevent Donald Trump from being president. Liz Cheney mentioning the certification in Congress or the chances of a potentially contingent election. That's why she wants them to lose the House. But if that doesn't work, then they're going to call Trump a Nazi. They're going to call him an authoritarian. They're going to call him a fascist. They need to figure out a way to strip as much possible power from Donald Trump as they can if he is going to indeed resume his work in that office. They're going to need a new and improved and updated version of the soft coup they ran throughout Donald Trump's first term. So think about what Liz Cheney said in that interview about wanting Democrats to win and skipping down in the article, by the way, Robert Kagan says this. Today, Republicans might be responsible for Washington's dysfunction, and they might pay a price for it in down-ballot races. Does anyone believe that Republicans in the House, or Republicans broadly, are viewed by the general public as the reason for Washington's dysfunction? I don't think the general public believes that at all. Even if they don't like Donald Trump, they still know that Joe Biden's just not up to the task. There are certainly some Biden supporters out there who think otherwise, but that is not a widely accepted view. Go out in public. You don't see people supporting Joe Biden. And if you get in conversations about this dynamic, people will state that they prefer Biden to Trump or that they believe we're better off than Biden than we would be with Trump. But they're not going to support Joe Biden. They're not going to attest to the good job that he's doing or the high character he possesses because they will be laughed at in public. Anybody who's having these conversations outside of that bubble knows that to be true. So Kagan is previewing that while they can't convince the country that Joe Biden could possibly beat Donald Trump, what they can do is continue to steal down ballot races and try to take away the House and the Senate. Maybe they can still win the narrative warfare on that battleground. But let's continue. But Trump offers benefits from dysfunction because he is the one who offers a simple answer, him. In this election, only one candidate is running on the platform of using unprecedented power to get things done, to hell with the rules. And a growing number of Americans claim to want that in both parties. Trump is running against the system. Biden is the living embodiment of the system. Advantage Trump. And again, that is Correct. I don't know why they continue to pretend that any of this is being done outside of the rules. Trump literally stepped away from power. That is what everyone understands to be the case. And it can't be explained by a pursuit of wealth or power. He would certainly have more had he never done this. Donald Trump could at any moment 
take the most gigantic payoff probably in world history to simply step aside and go enjoy his life. And he doesn't do it. He keeps on fighting. There's absolutely no way Donald Trump is concerned with amassing personal wealth and power for himself in his golden years, especially not to the point where he's risking his life and liberty every single day by doing so. It is just one of those crazy notions that should not be believed by anyone. Kagan talks about Trump's quote unquote legal problems and notes that once Trump is way out in front of the pack or once Trump is officially the nominee, it's going to be very, very difficult for these judges to decide against him or to throw him in jail as many of his detractors hope to see. And then Kagan writes, I mention all this only to answer one simple question. Can Trump win the election? The answer unless something radical and unforeseen happens, is, of course he can. If that weren't so, the Democratic Party would not be in a mounting panic about its prospects. Nor would you, Robert. I mean, let's look at the headline of this article once again. A Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. So it's not just Democrats freaking out. Robert Kagan is freaking out and his wife, Victoria Newland, is the undersecretary of state in the Democratic, though illegitimate, Biden administration. If Trump does win the election, he will immediately become the most powerful person ever to hold that office. Not only will he wield the awesome powers of the American executive, powers that, as conservatives used to complain, have grown over the decades, but he will do so with the fewest constraints of any president, fewer than even in his first term. What limits those powers? The most obvious answer is the institutions of justice, all of which Trump, by his very election, will have defied and revealed as impotent. A court system that could not control Trump as a private individual is not going to control him better when he is president of the United States and appointing his own attorney general and all the other top officials at the Justice Department. Think of the power of a man who gets himself elected president despite indictments, courtroom appearances, and perhaps even conviction. Would he even obey a directive of the Supreme Court? Or would he instead ask how many armored divisions the chief justice has? Now, all of this is preposterous fantasy. The government is actually not supposed to have the power to control private individuals, much less the president. There is the Constitution that sets out the framework. And that does not include controlling people as defined by those like Robert Kagan and Victoria Newland and the fake president, Joe Biden. Will a future Congress stop him? Presidents can accomplish a lot these days without congressional approval, as even Barack Obama showed. And I don't know what he means as even Barack Obama showed, as though Barack Obama was some wallflower in the executive branch. Barack Obama abused the powers of that office as much as anyone ever has. And for the record, he did not lead a peaceful transition of power at the end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017. Kagan writes, The one check Congress has on a rogue president, namely impeachment and conviction, has already proved all but impossible, even when Trump was out of office and wielded modest institutional power over his party. And that's right. They did try to impeach him, even though he was, quote unquote, no longer president. 
Donald Trump is also not a rogue president from any perspective, but the regimes. He never did anything impeachment worthy. And rather than admitting that, members of the regime pretend that the Republicans just wouldn't go along with the Democrats in doing what was right. Kagan discusses whether or not Trump would go in for a third term after this next term is over, which would be his fourth time being elected as president, actually. Then Kagan writes, a final constraint on presidents has been their own desire for a glittering legacy with success traditionally measured in terms that roughly equate to the well-being of the country. But is that the way Trump thinks? Yes, Trump might seek a great legacy, but it is strictly his own glory that he craves. As with Napoleon, who spoke of the glory of France, but whose narrow ambitions for himself and his family brought France to ruin, Trump's ambitions, though he speaks of making America great again, clearly begin and end with himself. And we've already addressed that. It's also funny that Kagan brings that up with the major motion picture, Napoleon, starring Joaquin Phoenix out in theaters. Naturally, as with any historical biography, it is totally just a revision of history. But Kagan is happy to go along with that revision because it serves his purposes. It's almost like that's why they made the movie in the first place. As for his followers, he doesn't have to achieve anything to retain their support. His failure to build the wall in his first term in no way damaged his standing with millions of his loyalists. That's because it wasn't his fault, Robert. Don't you understand that? We do. If you would, instead of thinking that Trump supporters are all rubes and morons, understand that they actually know what's going on and know where the blame can be placed for all of these things, and it's not with Donald Trump, then you might search for better examples to support what you're trying to say. Of course, you can't do that because you don't have better examples and you're just lying. Later on, Kagan writes, it is worth getting inside Trump's head a bit and imagining his mood following an election victory. He will have spent the previous year and more fighting to stay out of jail, plagued by myriad persecutors and helpless to do what he likes to do best, exact revenge. Think of the fury that will have built up inside him, a fury that, from his point of view, he has worked hard to contain. As he once put it, I think I've been toned down. If you want to know the truth, I could really tone it up. Indeed, he could and will. Yes, let's hope that Robert Kagan is right about that. Trump has been very reserved and very toned down. Let's see him unleash all the power and magnitude of that office to go after people who have committed crimes against humanity and crimes against America and crimes against children. People like Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Newland, who was involved in the overthrow of Ukraine in 2014 and plenty more coups around the world. These people are fairly high ranking members of the global regime. Yes, they are ultimately puppets, but they are far, far beyond some loser member of Congress like Eric Swalwell or Rashida Tlaib or, for that matter, George Santos or even a guy like Chip Roy. They're just little baby puppets. Robert Kagan and Victoria Newland are right in there where things get done and decisions get made. 
Kagan writes, we caught a glimpse of his deep thirst for vengeance in his Veterans Day promise to, quote, root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, lie, steal, and cheat on elections, and will do anything possible, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and the American dream. Note the equation of himself with, quote, America and the American dream. And it's weird that Kagan takes it that way because that's not what Trump is saying. He is really saying all of these people are absolutely trying to destroy America and the American dream. And that's exactly what they're doing. And they're not even hiding it. Again, they do conferences around the world about this stuff. They have the agendas published online, the UN's 2030 agenda, the World Economic Forum's agenda, the Great Reset. These things are not hidden. All that does is subsume America into this global regime, the rules-based international liberal world order that people like Robert Kagan and his wife, Victoria Newland support. If you want America to be a subservient part of a global order, then by definition, you are destroying America and the American dream. It is the eradication of national sovereignty, which necessitates the eradication of individual sovereignty. Kagan substantiates this little rhetorical sleight of hand by saying it is he they are trying to destroy, he believes, and as president, he will return the favor. So because they are trying to destroy him and he's saying that they're trying to destroy America and the American dream, that means, just like before, if you don't understand rudimentary logic, that means Donald Trump believes he is America and the American dream. It's pretty clear, for instance, that they want to destroy Christianity on some level. Donald Trump's not equating himself to Christianity and wouldn't be if he said these people are trying to destroy Christianity. It turns out they're trying to destroy a great many things. They're not all the same thing and they're not all Donald Trump. It just so happens that they all align on the same side as things that are very unfortunate for the global regime when you're trying to dominate the entire planet. He asserts that not only does Trump want revenge, people who will be in his administration are going to want revenge as well. And it'll be very hard to check the power of that all working together rather than the deep state subverting Donald Trump's presidency. He'll have people in there that are aligned with his agenda for draining the swamp and clearing out the corrupt bureaucracy, drastically reducing the size of government, separating entirely from this global regime agenda and all the various sub agendas in the United States, like the racial stuff, like the Green New Deal all the gender stuff, the slave trade at the southern border, the funding of foreign regimes under the guise of foreign aid. Skipping down again. How will Americans respond to the first signs of a regime of political persecution? Will they rise up in outrage? Don't count on it. Those who found no reason to oppose Trump in the primaries and no reason to oppose him in the general are unlikely to experience a sudden awakening when some former Trump-adjacent official, such as Milley, finds himself under investigation for goodness knows what. They will only know that Justice Department prosecutors, the IRS, the FBI, and several congressional committees are looking into it. And who is to say that those being hounded are not, in fact, tax cheaters or Chinese spies or perverts or whatever they might be accused of? 
Will the great body of Americans even recognize these accusations as persecution and the first stage of shutting down opposition to Trump across the country? So total inversion of the current reality that we witness in front of us. They are persecuting Donald Trump and saying at the same time that they are worried about what might happen if Americans would recognize it. If an illegitimate or dictatorial regime started abusing its power in order to prosecute political opponents, that's what's actually happening right now. And it's not just Donald Trump. It's people from Donald Trump's administration. It's patriotic Americans who have been activists for various causes. It's protesters who went peacefully to the Capitol on January 6th. And that's not even mentioning all of the various persecutions and human rights abuses that don't include or haven't included so far law enforcement, the infringements on free speech. And we can, of course, go well, well beyond that. It's only a concern if Trump does it. Back to Kagan. The Trump dictatorship will not be a communist tyranny where almost everyone feels the oppression and has their lives shaped by it. In conservative anti-liberal tyrannies, Ordinary people face all kinds of limitations on their freedoms, but it is a problem for them only to the degree that they value those freedoms, and many people do not. The fact that this tyranny will depend entirely on the whims of one man will mean that Americans' rights will be conditional rather than guaranteed. But if most Americans can go about their daily business, they might not care, just as many Russians and Hungarians do not care. So, Hungary... And Russia are, to the eyes of Robert Kagan, dictatorships and tyrannies. But they're not that. That is a fabrication of the global regime and communicated through the propaganda apparatus of that regime around the world. That is not a reality. Joe Biden is an illegitimate president of the United States of America right now, pursuing an agenda that is in every way communist. Joe Biden is legitimately a communist dictator. We legitimately live right now in a communist dictatorship where that illegitimate dictator pursues his political opponents with the Justice Department. This is how people get completely unmoored from reality. And this is like a 6,000 word article in the Washington Post by someone who we are told is a very serious person. People read this and think he must be right, but all he's doing is stoking greater fears. He writes, should Trump be successful in launching a campaign of persecution and the opposition prove powerless to stop it, then the nation will have begun an irreversible descent into dictatorship. With each passing day, it will become harder and more dangerous to stop it by any means, legal or illegal. Wow. Try to imagine what it will be like running for office on an opposition ticket in such an environment. In theory, the midterm elections in 2026 might hold hope for a Democratic comeback. But won't Trump use his considerable powers, both legal and illegal, to prevent that? Trump insists and no doubt believes that the current administration corruptly used the justice system to try to prevent his reelection. Will he not consider himself justified in doing the same once he has all the power? He has, of course, already promised to do exactly that, 
to use the powers of his office to persecute anyone who dares challenge him. Now, again, that is a lie. That is a downright absolute lie. He has not said at any point that he will use his powers to persecute political opponents or anyone who challenges him. It is not political persecution to pursue people and charge them and convict them and imprison them or worse for crimes they absolutely have committed, especially not when the entire public can see those crimes out in the open. And you certainly can't claim that Donald Trump is going to do that and that will be a threat to our democracy and that he will make it impossible legally or illegally for other people to get elected when they've already done all that stuff and they have done all that stuff. Kagan writes, this is the trajectory we are on now is descent into dictatorship inevitable. No, nothing in history is inevitable. Well, that doesn't even make sense. Unforeseen events change trajectories. Readers of this essay will no doubt list all the ways in which it is arguably too pessimistic and doesn't take sufficient account of this or that alternative possibility. Maybe despite everything, Trump won't win. Maybe the coin flip will come up heads and we'll all be safe. And maybe even if he does win, he won't do any of the things he says he's going to do. You may be comforted by this if you choose. Again, just stating as if it's something everybody knows that it is a, a coin flip, whether Trump or Biden will win. That is only based on the perception that lingers after the results of a fake election and all of the supporting that is adjusted to the results of fake elections and based on fake voter registries based themselves on fake census numbers. He writes, yes, I know that most people don't think an asteroid is heading toward us, and that's part of the problem. This is reminiscent of Sam Harris in that trigonometry interview, where because the asteroid is headed right for us and it's going to destroy our entire planet and all of mankind forever and ever and ever, you're allowed to do whatever you want on that basis. Well, I mean, wouldn't like assassinating Donald Trump be better than an asteroid hitting the planet? And that is essentially how people are taking this article. Matt Gates himself wrote on X, formerly Twitter. They're obviously greenlighting assassination and attached this article. Kagan continues wringing his hands nervously wondering who will stand up to Donald Trump before we complete our descent into dictatorship. He writes, we are closer to that point than we have ever been, yet we continue to drift toward dictatorship, still hoping for some intervention that will allow us to escape the consequences of our collective cowardice, our complacent, willful ignorance, and, above all, our lack of any deep commitment to liberal democracy. As the man said, we are going out, not with a bang, but a whimper. So it is everybody else's fault. And if you are adequately scared of Donald Trump, then what you need to do is everything you can to stop him, which means that you give your moral consent because we know that no one's actually going to go do anything. I mean, unless they're utterly insane or paid or otherwise compromised. Most people are happy to virtue signal online about their politics to make themselves look like heroes because they have mostly pointless lives. But when it really comes down to it, if you really ask them, 
How was your life made so much worse between 2017 and January of 2021? They're not going to have an answer. They were fine. Everything was fine. They were just constantly triggered and upset by the television. And they could simply turn off the television and go about a normal person's life and they would be okay. Donald Trump isn't going to destroy their lives in a second term or third term or fourth term, whichever one we're on. So they're not going to get out there and really do something. But what they will do is give their approval to people like Robert Kagan and Victoria Newland and Liz Cheney and all of those censors engaged in the information war to do whatever is necessary to make sure that Donald Trump can never become the illegitimate, tyrannical dictator that Joe Biden already is. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree linktree.com slash I'm your moderator and I'll see you soon out on the range What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!